Good morning, Church of Omaha. Let's gather in and find our seats. I am excited to be able to stand before you guys again and teach the word. Um, I was just telling Sister Kirkpatrick over here that no matter how many times I, I teach and preach from this pulpit, every time I get up here, I'm always still nervous. And I'll tell you, I, I'm, you know, there's always a little bit of butterflies like, what if I forget what I'm talking about? What if I say something I didn't actually mean to say? But the truth is, beyond those things, my biggest fear, if you will, is I never want to mishandle the Word of God. I don't take lightly the, the privilege or the responsibility that comes with standing behind the podium and, and representing the Church of Omaha. And so I'm going to ask this morning that you guys give me a little bit of grace as we go through what I think will be a little bit of a, a tough topic, but I promise when we get to the end, it will be worth it. This morning, we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 3, and you can stay seated because I have several verses to go through. The sound people in the back always love me when I preach because I have a lot of verses. So Exodus chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read the, the first 11 verses here. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he, that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Just log in your mind there, verse 7, that God saw the afflictions of his people. He heard their cries. He knew where they were, and he was hearing their prayers. Verse 8, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land, and a large, um, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11, And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? I'm going to read verse 9 through 11 in the message translation, just for clarity's sake. Listen to what it says here. The Israelite cry for help has come to me. And I have seen for myself now how cruelly they're being treated by the Egyptians. It's time for you to go back. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the people of Israel, out of Egypt. Now listen here. 
Moses answered God, but why me? What makes you think that I could ever go to Pharaoh and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt? And it's from this last verse I want to take my title for this morning, and it's simply this. Why me, Lord? Why me? These three little words are very heavy words. Often when I am helping married couples or chatting with people and talking about interactions and relationships in general, I always like to emphasize that talking and communication are not necessarily the same thing. You can talk to someone without communicating anything, but communication encompasses so much more than just the words that we say. It encompasses the way we act with each other, the way that we look with our body language, how we, uh, uh, the tone of our voice, the, the inflection of our voice. All of those things come together to create communication between two people. Now, I have to laugh as I was writing this down because all I kept thinking about was my youngest, Genevieve. And we've gone through this, this period with her of... Um, getting her face to match the words that are coming out of her mouth. And sometimes she'll say something, and it'll come off as rude. I mean, she's nine. She'll say things that come off a little bit rude, and I will tell her, Genevieve, you, you can't talk like that. You have to be nice to people. You have to be polite. And, and she'll say things like, I'm sorry, Dad. Right? Like, I heard the words you said, but your face does not say that same thing. So my phrase that she absolutely hates is, fix your face. I tell her that all the time, fix your face. And I think sometimes it's a little bit lost on her. And I, I, I'm not saying that she's not intelligent to understand that, but, but I think sometimes there's a disconnect in, in the immature mind that, well, I said the words you wanted me to say. Like, isn't that enough? Well, well, no, because the words don't mean anything if I can tell by looking at your face, you don't mean any of those things. I, I'm about to bring that to us to hear because we do the same thing many, many times, right? We say that we trust God wholly, but do our actions, does our body language, does are, are the things that we do day to day actually affirm the things that we say with our mouth all the time? I want to do something a little weird here, and I hope that it'll come across in the right way. I, I, I want to, to preach the message of why me, Lord, but I'm going to use this phrase, why me, Lord, three different ways to convey, convey three different very important points that I hope we can, we can get here. So first, I, I just want to talk about why me, Lord? You see, I don't know that much explanation is really needed to understand why Moses said these words, Right? When we talk about Moses' moment at the burning bush, we recall his excuse of why he can't do it. Why he can't do what God is asking. God tells Moses, Moses, you will be my voice in the court of Pharaoh. And I can all but imagine Pharaoh, uh, Moses' face being like, uh, God, do you, do you know that I stutter? Do you know that I, I'm not really confident talking in front of important people, and you're telling me I have to represent all of your people? I don't know that I can do that. And to be honest, I, I think that's a fair question. It's a big task. Feeling unprepared, I, I can understand why that would make someone nervous. 
But you see, Pharaoh actually, or, or Moses actually had more in this message than, than just his speech issue. Because remember, Moses was raised in the house of Pharaoh. He was raised in royalty. He was trained in the ways of, of the military. So, so Moses, when he hears this statement of, you're going to go back and talk to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go, Moses not only thought about his speech issues, but he's like, I know how big Pharaoh's army is. I know how quickly they will chop you down if you disagree with them. I know the cruelty of the Egyptians. And I don't think the people of Israel will accept me because for all those years before, I was an Egyptian. I was raised in Pharaoh's house. So they probably look at me and see the one who is oppressing them, the one who is, was holding them captive. And so I imagine all of these thoughts going through, through Moses' mind. And yet despite all of this, God still says, yep, 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 I heard all of that. But Moses, I'm choosing you. So as I was thinking about how to kind of get across here, what, what, is, what should our response be? And how should we, we respond when we feel God calling us to do something that we feel so woefully inadequate and unprepared for? And my mind immediately went to the story of Gideon. In Judges chapter 6, if you want to turn there, Judges chapter 6, I'm going to kind of skip around a little bit here, but I think we'll get the story from this. Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou, uh, till thou come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. What this, what this here is saying is this. Israel did something wrong. The reason they're in the position that they're in currently is because of their own wickedness. But even in this place, they were being fruitful in the growing of food and cattle and all of those things, but no matter how successful they were with growing all of the food, every time it was time for harvest, the enemy would come in and take it all away. And so there was this endless cycle of them working the ground incredibly hard and toiling away only for the enemy to step in at the last moment and take all that they had worked toward. And so God, seeing this, is going to hear the cry of his people just as he did when they were in Egypt. And so look here back to verse 7. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land." And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak which was, called, which was in Oprah. Immediately, sorry, I just see Oprah every time I look at that. 
<laughs> that pertained unto Joash and the Abazarites. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Pause for a moment. I'm, I'm sure we have all heard this passage before the story or whatever. But I need you to really think about what's happening here. See, we talk about the fact that Gideon, when he is told he's a mighty man of valor, at that moment when he's called that, he's hiding and he is working in the threshing floor, but he's hiding while doing it. And so we look at Midian and say, well, sure he's not a mighty man of valor because Gideon's hiding doing this. That's, that's not an issue for me. I understand that. If I was in a place where there was an enemy all around me who would beat me and, and do all of that kind of stuff, I can understand not wanting to stand out in the open and say, look what I'm doing. Don't you want to come and steal this from me? Right. That, that to me doesn't make that big of a deal. But here is the real issue. Here is why there is such this disparity in, in Gideon's mind. Gideon was not really a, a, a well-trained military man. He was not someone who was uh, what we would think of as like a big champion in the battle. He was someone who had a job and he did his job well. And I'm going to assume by the fact that God chose him, that went to him, that God saw the heart of Gideon and knew that Gideon would ultimately do what he was being asked to do. But it's easy to see why Gideon initially, just like Moses, is a little unsure. Me? You want me when all of the, the, the army of Israel and all of these other people got destroyed and, and their wickedness and now we're here trapped and you want me to be the one to make a difference. You want me to be the mighty man of valor. So listen what it says here. Let's pick up in, let's pick up verse 13. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of saying? Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man." And he said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee and bring forth my present and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until thou come again. What's happening here is Gideon, hearing this, this voice speaking to him, even though he believes in God, it's not that he denies the existence of God, but he's looking at his current predicament and maybe being a little skeptical about what he's being told to do, right? There's this lack of, or there's this presence of fear that is clouding his faith to do what God is calling him to do. And so even after being told all of these things, he, he says, okay, okay, okay. If, if you really want me to do this, I'm going to need you to prove it to me. So he asked the individual before him, he says, don't go anywhere until I come back. And the angels waited for him. 
And verse 18, or verse 19 says, And Gideon went in and made ready a kid and unleavened cakes of an ephah, a flour, the flesh he put in a basket, and he put the broth in, in a pot and brought it unto him under the oak and presented it. And the angel of God said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes, lay them upon this rock, and, and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes, and there rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face, and the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is yet in Ophrah um, of the Abazarites. Now I want to pause for one moment. We've talked about before, and, and if you are unaware, I want to share this concept real quick with you, and it is the law of first mention. The law of first mention simply refers to the first time a, a, a name of God or an attribute of God is mentioned in, in Scripture, it's done so with the understanding that the situation is demonstrating what that means. So, for example, here, this is the first time the phrase Jehovah Shalom is used in the Old Testament. The very first time. Now, I find it interesting because the word shalom means peace. So when they say Jehovah Shalom, they're saying my God is my peace or the God of peace or my God brings peace, right? So here in a desert place away from their promised land, after doing evil and being oppressed by the enemy, when God's presence speaks to Midian or to Gideon, Gideon, for the first time, uses this phrase, Jehovah Shalom. I find that amazing because what it shows me is God's peace has nothing to do with your current location. But that even in the hand of those who oppress you, even in the moment where you were held captive and, and have no faith to pull you out, even in that time, God can still be Jehovah Shalom for you. So here we should see Gideon dancing and winning the, the battle and all is well. But the very next verse. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father, and cut down the grove that is by it. And build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place and take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove thou shalt cut down. Now, this seems kind of like a, a, a weird place to put this in there that God is, is telling him he's basically going to go and, and build an altar and he's going to sacrifice something at this particular altar. And that he's going to tear down one of the altars and the grove that goes by it. So when you read, if you stopped right there, you'd be like, Okay, God's just, I guess, wanting a sacrifice to say, thanks for being God of peace. But that's not why God had him do this. You see, when God talked to Gideon and he explained to him what was going to happen and how that he was going to use him, and he demonstrated a miracle, if you will, before him to give him that peace, the immediate next thing that God called Gideon to do was to tear down 
the altar that had been erected to a false god. You see, where Gideon went, where Gideon was instructed to go and put an offering, was where Baal was being worshipped by the Midianites. Now, here's why that matters. First, the obvious. If God is going to do something in your life, there is an expectation that you in turn will begin to remove the false idols that are hindering the relationship between him and you. That is your job. God will be your peace, but you must be the one to tear down the altars. But listen, when you begin to tear down the altars, don't think that the enemy is just going to go into the night quietly. Because here in verse 30, Then the men of the city came unto Joash, these men are talking about the Midianites, Bring out thy son that he may die, because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he cut down the grove that was by it. So now imagine this if you can. Gideon sees an angel. Sees an angel do a miracle for him. He then calls God his God of peace. He obeys God and tears down the false altar. And then immediately is greeted with these men that say, yeah, we're going to kill you now. You're trying to get rid of our God and worship the true God. We're going to kill you. Interestingly, I, I feel like that's what Jesus said. That your enemy, as a roaring lion, seeketh whom he may devour. That that is his goal. That when we try to tear down the things of the world and we begin to uplift God in our our understanding and relationship with him, it's at that moment that we often feel the strongest battle against us by the enemy. So now we get down to chapter 7. We're going to go to verse 17 because I'm going to run out of time super quick. All right. Chapter 7, verse 17, and, the, and he said unto them, look on me and do likewise. Where we are in this is Gideon now is putting into place the plan that God had told him. That he is going to go and he is going to wage war against the Midianites. And God is going to give them victory. But the setup to this is that when Gideon put out the cry initially, he got all of these people, somewhere around 32,000 people showed up to fight on the behalf of Gideon. But almost immediately, God says, okay, Gideon, I want you to ask the question or tell the people, if any of you are afraid, you can leave. That 32,000 almost instantly turned to 10,000. Two-thirds of the people of God, when faced with conflict, immediately fled. Church, you cannot allow your strength to be based on the person sitting next to you. You have no idea where their heart is or isn't, and that's not an accusation, but it is that if God has given you a word for you to do, then that's it. If the person next to you doesn't want to do it, that's fine, that's on them. Your obligation is to do what God has told you to do. So immediately we're cut down to one third, 10,000. Gideon probably, oh, oh, uh, okay, 10,000, we... We might still be able to pull this off. But God said, oh, no, no, we're not done yet. We're not done yet. Now I want your people to go down by the water. And I want you to tell them to drink. And if they lap it up with their hand or if they put their mouth into the water, it's going to divide them even further. So after everything is said and done, God has whittled this down from 32,000 to 300. 300. Opposing a force that was 10 times larger in numbers, but also fighting a war that was not their original homeland. 
And so now, I, 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 you know, Gideon seems to still be faithful because he's doing what God is telling him to do. But I have no doubt that in the back of his mind, he's like, yeah, I, don't, I don't know, God. 32,000 down to 300? Oof, it's going to be tough. So here's what happens. God tells him, this is what you're going to do. You're going to give all the people a trumpet. And you're going to give all the people a pot and a lamp. And when you have the signal, you're going to say to the people, blow the trumpet. And when you blow the trumpet, you're going to say, this is the sword of God. So they blow the trumpet. All 300 of them, they blow the trumpet and they say, this is the sword of God. And would you know it? They did not have to lift a single finger to fight any of them. God came in and all of the enemy turned against each other in confusion and fear and fled. So Gideon didn't even need the 300. He just needed God. Now, when I read that part of the story, my mind immediately went to the battle of Jericho. The impenetrable walls of Jericho with the well-trained military versus a small band of Jews who were supposed to go in and somehow throw down this city. And yet God tells them, yeah, you don't have to worry about all of that. I'm going to fight the battle. What you need to do is you're going to go out there and you're going to walk around the city so that the enemy hears and sees you. And then when I tell you, the priests are going to blow the trumpet. And of course, we know they blow the trumpet. The walls come down. God wins the victory. Again, they didn't need anyone but God in that situation. Well, then my mind immediately went to the book of Revelation because I seem to recall that the end of the story is a trumpet blows, the sky is parted, and Jesus on the horse comes down with a sword and cuts down all of the enemies. You see, when God calls you to battle, he is not calling you because you are so uniquely equipped that no one else can do it. He's not calling you because you are the smartest person in the room. He is calling you because he wants you to be a vessel. God does not need you to bring your strength to the battle. God needs you to simply herald the coming of the Lord to the battle. Because it's he who will win the battle. The trumpet we blow is just the announcing of his dominion and his presence and his kingdom. And that's should be such an encouragement because what it says, when you feel that temptation to say, well, why me, Lord? Why not you? Do you serve the same God I do? Yeah. Then why not you? Does, does the God you serve have all power? Yeah. Then why not you? Do you believe that God has never lost a battle? Right. Then why not you? Sometimes we have to turn our gaze away from us and instead turn it toward God and see that we are not as helpless as we think we are. If I ended the message right here, 22 minutes, okay. If I ended the message right here, we could leave this place shouting, victorious, yes, God's going to fight our battles, he'll be victorious, we have no issues, and all that's true. But there's another why me, Lord, that we need to discuss. And it's the why me, Lord? Why? Why do I keep suffering? Why is at every turn I feel 
more oppressed than before. Why is it, God, I leave the altar feeling victorious and I go home only for war to start again? Why? See, this is the, the, this is the question that Job had to ask. And I'm not going to read through all of the story here. I just want, I'm going to kind of tell you the story. If you want to read what I'm going to reference, it's Job's chapter 1 and 2, Job chapter 38 and chapter 40. The whole story is good. You should read it all. But what I'm going to talk about comes from those four chapters. So in the beginning of the story we see here, God references Job as an upright man. He calls him perfect. Now, perfect here does not mean without sin. Perfect does not mean that he is, he is, is, is you know, the same as God with no issue. That's, that's not what the term perfect here means. Perfect just simply means this, that Job is doing what God has called him to do, is being obedient to what God has instructed him to do, worshiping God, trying to be the best representative of God that he can be. That's what it means when it says Job was an upright man and perfect. So Job, Scripture points out here that Job was not just an upright man because he himself lived for God, but that he demonstrated this lifestyle for his children also. And, and, and the, the scripture actually makes a point to say this, that when his children, when his sons and daughters get together to have a party, essentially is what it's referencing here, that Job, just out of the fear that they may sin against God, takes the time to offer up sacrifice on their behalf. Parents, you can't control what your children do, but it doesn't mean you can't intercede on their behalf. You can't stop them from making the choices they're going to make, but it doesn't mean that you can't petition the God of glory to intervene and to show them the error of their ways. And this is what Job was doing. And it was another thing listed by God as a positive attribute. Job was doing everything he could, everything he could to be the man that God had called him to be. And then we find in chapter 2, who shows up? Satan, standing in heaven before God. And God talks to the, the, the people there that are with him, to the angels and to Satan. He says, hey, have you guys considered my servant, my, my servant Job, how he's perfect and upright and, and keeps my word and all that good stuff? And Satan steps up, says, oh, yeah, 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 I know that guy. But you do know, God, that the only reason he does that stuff is because you have a hedge around him, because you've given him all this cattle and wealth and children and happiness. I guarantee you, if you would just remove that hedge that he would curse you to your face. So God says, okay, all right. You can, you can touch his stuff and his family, but you cannot touch him. So we read in what is probably the most disparaging one chapter of the entire Bible. All of a sudden, Job, this man who interceded for his children, who prayed for his home, who worshiped God, in one fell swoop loses everything. Everything. Now, while the scripture does point out and list that he lost all of his cattle and he lost all of his wealth, I promise you that is not what broke Job. I promise you what broke Job was when he heard that his children were gone. I can tell you as a father that if I lost everything in this world, I would probably be sad. I would probably be in despair to some extent. But if I lost my children, that's a bridge that I, I, I don't know, could I cross it? So now I'm trying to envision this in my own mind that, that here is this man of God who's doing what he's supposed to do and then this happens. 
From this point, his friends come. Uh, or Satan asks if he can touch him physically, meaning make him sick. And he does. And he gets boils. And he's sitting in the street, the Bible says, covered in boils and in despair. And three of his friends come from, from far away. And they come and they sit with him. And at first it seems okay because when they first arrived, the scripture says that they sit with him in the street and said nothing, which is probably the best thing they could have done. Because sometimes we as people, we want to help and we feel the way that we can help is just to not stop talking. Because we don't like that uneasy feeling either. We don't like that, that feeling of like silence, like I should say something. And so we just start saying things because we don't like the silence. And then what happens is we eventually get to a place like this, where Job's friends come and they sit in silence first. And I'm not going to impute that they have bad intentions initially. I don't know. I, I can't read their mind. But what we do know is that after some time, all of a sudden, these three friends began to basically accuse Job. Job, Job, you know God, that he's perfect and just. And, 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 and if God is doing this to you, you must be doing something wrong. Like, there's some secret sin within your heart that you're hiding, and that's why God is doing all of this. And at first, Job's response is great. He says, be quiet. I have not done anything before God. I've, I've listened to his voice. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. I, I naked came I into the world, naked will I leave. Okay? But then they keep going and keep going and keep going. And then eventually, between the physical despair of what he is feeling, the no doubt emotional depression and despair that he's feeling from having lost everything, and now the only people around him are doing nothing but accusing him, at some point he gives in to the voices of the enemy and he says, God, you better come down here and talk to me because I know I didn't mess up. So I think there's been a mistake somewhere in the ledger because I don't think you meant Job. Maybe you meant Job. That, that's the confusion. He meant Job, not Job. So eventually the younger, there was a younger gentleman in this group that eventually said, hey, hey, you other guys, stop talking. I sat here. I listened. I listened to you all say your stuff. You're all my elders. But just please stop talking. You do not speak for God. And so he begins to talk to Job and, and to tell Job, listen, God does not have to answer you. You are not God. God doesn't owe you an explanation. But Job still wants to hear God's voice because he's sure that in a court situation where he can plead his case, he will prove God wrong. At this point, I will say, be careful what you say. Because what we see next is a whirlwind. Just imagine for a moment. This isn't, this isn't you walking in your boss's office or your, your boss's office and him yelling at you for what you did wrong. This is the king of glory bringing about what scripture talks about, about the sky being dark and out of the whirlwind, this, this thundering voice and the fact that he didn't drop dead of a heart attack immediately is honestly a little surprising. And so he hears this, this thundering voice before God. And he says what I think is probably, um, um, to use the phrase of, 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 of modern culture, the best mic drop moment in all of Scripture. He says, who is this that has accused me? 
Who can stand before the God of glory and demand that he give you an account? And then God goes into an amazing slash convicting slash awe-inspiring speech about all of the complexities of creation, about the tides, about the movement and growth of all things, about the creation of animals, of all of this over his mastery of the stars and the planets and the heavens, about how that he existed before time. And so after listing all of this, he says, now, Job, pull up your big boy pants and tell me what you got to say. And thankfully, Job kind of came to a sense. He's like, yeah, I don't want to say anything anymore. Literally, the scripture says he put his hand over his mouth and he said, God, I'm vile. I probably shouldn't have had this conversation to begin with. So it stops. Now, here's what I want you to learn from this story. God never told Job why he suffered. You see, for us, for us, we think the story should have had a fairy tale ending where God says, oh, Job, Job, I was just trying to teach you a lesson, old buddy. I'm going to give it all back to you, so you don't need to worry about it. No. Job does get blessed. He does get stuff. But listen, that's not the point of the story. Job receiving the, the things at the end, the double all of that, we like to talk about that, about how God will give us twice what we lost. That's not the point of the story. And if you believe that that is the only point of the story, you are missing something incredibly important. You see, the point of the story was this. God is God, and you and I are not. God is the only one who knows all things, and you and I do not. God sits above time. You and I do not. And therefore, God does not owe us an explanation as to why he makes the choices he does. Now listen, I'm not saying I wouldn't like to know. Right? I'm not saying that, like, Job is this horrible person for wanting to know answers. But what I am saying is this. If we are not careful, we will allow our temporary earthly despair to put us in division against the God of glory. And if we are very not careful, that division will go from being a temporary earthly struggle to an eternal separation from God himself. If you think life is hard now, imagine living all of eternity absent from God's presence. What one of the one of the 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 things or lessons, and I'm sure there's many, one of the lessons that I take away from this story is this. If that situation had never happened to Job, if we would have never learned the story about how that man in his suffering sometimes wants to challenge God, and God then in return says, listen, I made all things. I know the end of all things. I am moving things for the betterment of his kingdom, not just the betterment of you, right? We like to say, oh, God has a plan for us, and that's true. I believe it. God wants to prosper us. Yeah, I believe that. But listen, when it says all things work together for the good, it does not just mean for your good. It means for the good of the kingdom. 
It means the good of the body of Christ. Because what's needed far more than you to live in a big house is for your family to be walking in relationship with God. And so sometimes what we think for good means is not what God means as for good. And so this story, though Job may have never learned the end answer as to why he suffered, I now know that even in the face of my own suffering, God has it in control. That I know that even when I do not understand why day after day things just keep falling apart, I do know that God created the heavens and the earth. That He is before time and outside of time. That He's from everlasting to everlasting. That He hung the stars in the sky. He, he told the sun to shine. And if I know God can do that, then I can also say, God, though I don't understand, I can still trust you. It still hurts. There will still be tears. There will still be moments of sadness. And God's okay with that. Please, don't listen to these liars on TV who will tell you, if you're not rich, then you're not living for God. God never promised that. You know what the danger of that kind of mentality is? That if you're not rich and you're not doing something right, God must not be that big of a deal anyway so I need to do whatever I need to do to be rich because that's what God wants, right? So if I have to lie, steal, cheat, step outside of the word to get rich, I mean, that's what God wants me to do, right? No, no. God wants you to be in a relationship with him and God wants you to help others to be in relationship with him. So I would say, just as with Gideon, just as with Job, if you feel that you came to the altar and you prayed and God gave you victory and you felt God's peace and you go home and there's trouble, good. Not good that you're struggling, but good because God has you where he wants you. The enemy will not attack you if you're doing nothing for the kingdom of God. Why would the enemy want to stop you if you're helping him out? So when you feel that attack of the enemy... It's okay to be unsure. It's okay to have those human emotions of God. I don't know how I'm going to make it through this. Why do they keep lying? Why, why is it that every time I turn around, something else happens? You can have those, those concerns. You can have those thoughts. As long as you couple it with this. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Because I know that in the end, his word is forever settled under heaven. I know that his promises are yea and amen. I know that heaven and earth shall pass away, but his word shall not pass away. I know that God is not a man that he should lie. And therefore the promises he has spoken to you and to me will come to pass. God does not forget like we forget. He knows all things and I want you to know that if God has given you promises, if God has given you a word, please... Do not give up because God has not forgiven, for, forgotten. For the sake of just being abundantly cautious, I'm not going to point to any individuals or names, but I tell you right now, I look in this room and I see people who I have known for time where, where their loved one was praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and it seemed like it would not happen. And yet to this day, I see some of those very people sitting on these chairs. This brings me to my last one. 
We all want to stand. In the Norwegian area, there is a, a group of people who are immune to HIV. They are immune, cannot get HIV. That may seem like a random statement, but let me explain. AIDS, HIV is a virus. The only way viruses can replicate is when they are attached to a host. So for example, coronavirus. What happens in these types of viruses is initially they may start off super deadly. But then over time, they mutate, 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 and they become less deadly but more contagious because if the virus killed off its host right away, it has no way to replicate itself and to grow and spread, if you will. So what's kind of unique about this small set of people is they lack the physical receptor within their genome for the HIV virus to attach itself. And because they don't have that, that receptor, that place for the virus to attach, they can't get it. When God says you need to be renewed or you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, here's what he's saying. We need to stop and take inventory of the receptors within our spirits. Are we entertaining what the world says about God and what the world says about us and, and, uh, and the depression and those things that are obviously not of God and allowing them to take root within us and to replicate and then to grow and then ultimately to spread to those around us? Or would we be willing to change our mind, spiritually speaking, to remove those places where the devil would like to get a foothold and maybe if we do that, we can change the why me, Lord. To why me, Lord? What have I ever done to deserve your goodness? What have I ever done, Lord, to deserve your love and your mercy? Lord, what have I ever done that you would be so patient with me that no matter how many times I have messed up, no matter how many times I have broken promises and hurt other people, you're still there waiting. You see, the shift in the mind is that I, I'm going to remove those places for the, oh, woe is me, to saying, oh, me. You saw me. You became like me so that I could become like you. You left your throne in glory for someone like me who has messed up so many times, who has done things the wrong way, who has said things he shouldn't have said, and yet still, from before the foundation of the world, you looked out over the expanse and said, Jeremy, I see you, and I'm coming. Church, I know in this room, there are people who are hurting. There are people who are being waged war against by the enemy. What I want to challenge you is, let's stop saying, why me, Lord? And start saying, What's so special about me that you would love me this way? That you would continue to extend the hand of grace and mercy in my direction? That you would keep knocking at the door no matter how many times I yell, go away! And still, please, 
Just let me in. I'd like to close in a word of prayer, but listen, I want you to think about this as we enter into the next part of our service. Because praise and worship is the training ground for where we change the mind. Where we stop looking at ourselves in despair and begin to look and magnify the goodness of God. We begin to tell and meditate on the word that says, God, you are victorious above all. God, you are the king of glory. And no matter what happens, I will serve you. See, fear will tell you, but but what if? God is saying, even if. Even if. You will have trouble. But even if, I'm still good. You will have lost, but even if, I am still there with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lord, I pray that you would touch our hearts this morning. Let us feel your peace, your love, your mercy, and your grace. Help us, oh God, to shut out the voice of the enemy, the voice that says that we're too far gone or there's too much happening and you must not love us. And instead, let us hear the voice of the Spirit saying, Come unto me, all that are weary, for I will give you rest. Lord, let us hear the voice that says that you are our strong tower, our rear guard, our buckler, our shield, our defense, that you are Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shalom. You are everything that we need, but more than that, you are our God. We love you and thank you. Help us, O oh God, as we move into this time of worship to truly reflect on your goodness. Despite who we are, you are still there calling for us in relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.